Welcome to Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. Our world is increasingly complex, fast-paced, and divided. How are people of faith bringing their best selves to the world each day? How are we leading, growing, and being as people of God? Ing Podcast is a place to share insights and stories from individuals creatively engaging the present and moving into the future. On today's episode, Ing host Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards sits down with Reverend Dr. Emily Ralph Servant, a faith leader who has spent a lifetime serving the church as a radio host, pastor, writer, professor, conference minister, and theologian. One of the conclusions that I've come to in the research that I've done is we can't expect to be changed by continuing to listen to the same voices. Because what happens is we think we're asking new questions and coming to, to different answers. But really it's just, it's recycling the same thing over and over again with maybe a tweak here or there. And so we're not actually changing. And so if we want to change, if we want to say that what we've been doing for the past however long isn't working for us, then we need to invite new voices to speak into our reality. Emily will be reflecting more from her new book, Experiments in Love, an Anabaptist Theology of Risk-Taking in Mission. Welcome to Ing Podcast. I'm Dennis Edwards, Associate Professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, and I'm happy to be having a conversation today with Reverend Dr. Emily Ralph Servant, who is the leadership minister for Mosaic Conference of the Mennonite Church. Also, Emily has a new book coming out called Experiments in Love, an Anabaptist Theology of Risk-Taking in Mission. So, Emily, welcome. Thanks so much for talking with me today. It's so great to talk to you. Yeah, you know, we... I was ordained in the Mennonite Church, you might know, and, and had ordination for about 20 years. And I'm, I'm still Anabaptist, even though I'm not ordained in Mennonite Church. So I know we've got a lot of friends in common. Yes. So um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit. At, oh, you know what? One of the friends we have is your, I uh, think, is the title conference minister, Steve Chris. Uh, right. Yes. He's the executive minister of Mosaic Conference. Executive yeah. minister. Yeah. He's he's. He's somebody that really was helpful to me during my years in the Mennonite Church. Um, well, you know, I'm not going to talk just about Mennonite Church stuff, <laughs> <That's good. laughs> but, but I am hoping you could share a little bit about your own journey and what you're up to now. And I think we'd really love to hear what being leadership minister means. <laughs> Oh, yeah, sure. Because everybody used different names for similar kinds of roles, right? Uh, Yeah. So I I grew up as the daughter of church planters in the Mennonite church. Um, And of course, for anybody who knows what it's like to be a pastor's kid or um, to be part of a church plant, you're involved from the time that you're born, right? From the time that you start that. (laughs) And so I would say when people say, how long have you been in ministry? As far as I'm concerned, it's been since I was eight years old. I have memories of helping my parents uh, set up for church services and break things down, planning Sunday school lessons, um, helping with evangelism in our neighborhood, running children's programs when we had small groups in our Mm -hmm. house for neighborhood kids. That just became a part of who I was. And so I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't love Jesus Mm -hmm. and when I didn't want other people to know Jesus. 
And over time, that has changed Hmm. in terms of Hmm. who I see Jesus to be and how I see Jesus and the reality of the life of Jesus affecting our world. But I don't think that that passion for sharing Jesus has changed in the decades since then. Hmm. Um, So from that point, we moved into Franconia Conference, um, where my dad was a pastor of a couple different congregations, which is now Mosaic Mennonite Conference. Mm -hmm. And I continued in ministry just kind of on the side, but I was not going to do ministry for real, right? Like not paid, <laughs> not professional ministry. Um, I saw my, my dad went through a number of, of difficult situations mm-hmm. as pastor and I saw how, how hard it can be. Mm-hmm. And I was going to do something that paid um, and something <laughs> that, that was just totally different from that. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't ignore that call. And, and so I began in music ministry. I worked in radio for a while, eventually became, became associate pastor, went to seminary. Hmm. And during that time, I, I just kept observing this pattern in the Mennonite churches that I was around, especially the older traditional Mennonite churches that had been around for a while, that there would be these waves of impulse towards mission um, and they looked, they took different forms. They looked different, but there'd be these waves of impulse towards mission and people from the neighborhood would come in to the church. And then after a period of time, maybe six months or a year or a couple years, many of those new people would trickle back out. Mm. Yeah. And it, it seemed hard for these congregations to retain, um, these, these new people from the neighborhood. And in other congregations, they would say, we want to be all about mission. We want to tell people about Jesus, but they, they just seemed unable to make any Mm. changes Mm. to be able to do that. And, and just wondering Mm. what's going on here. Like what's happening Mm. in these congregations. And, and so I, um, had a conversation one day with another pastor in our conference and he said, you know, Emily, we have these people in our congregations who are, who are really, um, experienced and gifted businessmen, Hmm. and they're willing to take huge risks for the sake of growing their business. Hmm. But then when it comes to church, they're not willing to take any risks at all. Hmm what's going on? And we just kind of chewed on that a little bit. And I couldn't forget that conversation. Hmm. And so when it came time to do my doctoral work and I had to pick something to research, I thought to myself, that's what I want to look at. I want to look at why is it that we as Mennonite churches in my context um, are unwilling or unable to take risks, especially risks related to mission. Hmm. Uh, and so that's what that's what I did my research on. That's what I did my PhD in, and that is what um, prompted the writing of this book, Experiment in Love: An Anabaptist Theology of Risk Taking and Mission. And so now, part of my job as a leadership minister is to work alongside pastors and congregations to help them just navigate the normal rhythms of church life, but also to help them think about mm. their future, to think about mission, to think about God's dream for their congregation congregation and what they might need to consider changing or adapting Mm. or ways that they might want to think differently about mission um, to 
to be able to join God in, in the work that God is doing. And so it's really exciting to see all these different pieces of my, my journey, my life coming together into this role. Hmm. Well, that is quite a journey. I, I appreciate you sharing it. I, I, uh, as I was thinking about you talking to, uh, mentioning being a, a child of church planters, I was thinking that your story or your journey might be triggering for my own kids because we started <laughs> we started a church well twice in my life in our home and uh, once in Brooklyn, New York, and once in Washington D.C. and they they'll remember the D.C. one very well at how inconvenient it was for us setting up in the house all the time and all those different things and I don't think any of my kids will pursue church ministry as a vocation. <laughs> uh huh. Well, you might be surprised, Dennis. Yeah, you well, might be surprised. I I would definitely be surprised. <laughs> but you know, you said a lot there that just got me thinking, and I and and maybe a bit of it was triggering for me because I'm not I'm not going to throw any congregations under the bus but I did serve a Mennonite church and I had a hard time. I frankly mm-hmm. will say that. And I, I wrote about some of it in my book, Might from the Margins. But but um, that notion of being risk averse, I want, I want to explore it a little bit. And, I, and, I, and just mm-hmm. to set up, I was um, the associate and then lead pastor of a church in D.C. And D.C. at the time was much more, uh, much, much greater percentage of African-Americans than it is now. In fact, people, you know, affectionately called it Chocolate City and because it had always been a majority uh, African-American city until uh, recently. Um, so back then, it was kind of weird to have this almost all-white church uh, in Chocolate City. So they hired me, and, and I'm trying to get us to connect with our community, which I thought was my job as a, as a pastor of mission, I was called. And, um, and I was so surprised at how difficult that was. And I think what the congregation, maybe the leadership who was not on the same page with me, maybe what they were missing was how hurtful that came off to someone like me to be able to say, uh, we're not really uh, wanting to um, minister to folks in the community that look like me. Um, mm-hmm. yet they were happy to have folks from the, from the suburbs come in and, w- and the way you said it, folks who were taking risk in their businesses and we would celebrate that in church, people who were making good money and taking these risks. This was something that people talked about in church, but we didn't think about taking the risk for mission by and large. So I'm wondering if you could sort of, I don't know, you don't have to play off of my story, but I'm curious what risk averse um, a, a risk aversion looks like and, and what, if you could elaborate on that. Oh, sure. Let me ask you a question first. Sure. Like in, in your experience, Dennis, mm-hmm. the risk aversion that you witnessed, mm-hmm. did it, did it tend to be a, around like use of money? Did it tend to be around the facility or did it tend to be around, um, investment in the community? Oh, those great questions. I could tell you're a researcher. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> it wasn't about, um, money. There, there didn't seem to be any problem with putting money towards something that uh, was for, quote unquote, the neighborhood kids. In fact, the, the, the church had a program for, for kids after school where they did tutoring and such. The difficulty would be if those families wanted to be part of our church. That was not um, on the radar or to do pro, or, or to do ministry that was deliberately about getting folks in our community to be part of the church. In fact, I was, you know, when things got really heated at one point, somebody said to me, we thought you would be the person answering the door 
when, you know, we would get a lot of people ringing the doorbell asking for money. So we thought you would be the person that would answer the door and deal with those folks at the door. So it was it was a it wasn't about um, giving money. It was more about dealing with the actual people. Yep. Yeah. And that's where I think your story so beautifully illustrates what I, I have observed. And that is people might associate taking risks in mission, the risks being about finances or the risks being about the building. And those can sometimes be risks that congregations face. Um, But when it comes down to it, oftentimes the risks we're least likely to take are the ones that have to do with relationships. Mm. It's the risk of saying the wrong thing. Mm. It's the risk of, of building relationships with people, not knowing what their response is going to be, whether you're going to be rejected, whether you're going to be embarrassed, whether you're going to um, relate to them in a way that looks bad on you. Um, The risk of making mistakes or failing is really strong for congregations and we can mask it behind concerns about finances or concerns about programs or concerns about our buildings. But what it comes down to is that oftentimes we're afraid of taking the risk of making friends Hmm. or building relationships or the risk of being changed by people who are different from us. Well, that's, that's rich, but you got me thinking now. I'm curious, when you, when you talk about that risk-taking, are you framing this from the standpoint of a Mennonite congregation or, let's say, a racially homogenous congregation? I guess what I'm saying is I, can, I hear that from the uh, church side. I've heard it many, many times. What I'm not sure is if the church folks realize that there's this risk-taking on the other side. You know, mm. folks in the neighborhood. I So my wife and I built relationships with people in our community and she worked with women who had had um, who were uh, who had been teen moms. And uh, and I remember we would have we had a Bible study in our house, but they would never come to the church. And these mm. and women who lived, I mean, like a block away or across the street. And they watched. They saw the weddings on Saturdays. They saw these white folks congregating around the building. And they said, oh, I could never go there. So Mm -hmm. there was a sense of a risk on their part. I'm wondering, do you see it as a mutual risk, folks? You you know know what I'm asking? Absolutely. That's a great question, Dennis, and a great observation, because it is a mutual risk. And and traditionally, congregations, and now I'm going to speak, I just want to be very clear, I'm speaking about white, traditional Mennonite congregations, because mm. that's the context I know. Yeah. And so I'm not going to speak for other contexts and knowing there is a lot of a difference even within that category, sure, but I'm going to sure. generalize okay. about that category. Um, traditionally, we've expected everyone else to take the risk while we remain kind of safe in our our community (laughs) in the church. While others in the community, in our neighborhoods, they take the risk of coming to us. They take the risk of of building relationships. They take the risk of learning new ways of of being and relating to one another. Mm. They take the risk of rejection. If they come to our congregation and they're not the right kind of person, they could be rejected. 
from our congregation. And so for many years, we have expected other people to take the risk of mission instead of taking on those risks ourselves. Oh my, so well said. I mean, I'm, I guess I am getting triggered a little bit. I can just, I just remember conversations I've had with people that I've tried to share the good news with and try to get them to be, uh, uh, connect to my congregation because I thought, well, you know, I'll take it on myself to try to help people connect mm-hmm. in this congregation. And just the fears and the concerns that you just articulated really well. I wish you could have been there to consult with us back then. <laughs> but, you know, we're always learning. So I don't, and I don't, and I'm sure they're not where they were, you know, 20 or so years ago when I was there. But, um, right. but when you talk about this risk taking, you, you connected to, to God's story, God's way of being in the world. And, and, uh, and you say something about God being a risk taker, you know, to be, you said something like being radically present to a vulnerable world. What does it mean for God to be a risk taker? Isn't that amazing? I just, I love that thought of God as a risk taker. And there's so many aspects of that, that we can consider. But even if we go back to the beginning of everything, right? That we have God who is a community, right? God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit who lives and exists in community and mutual relationship. Mm. And And anyone who is in relationship with another knows that we're affected by other people. You can't remain in this this silo and be unaffected when you're in relationship. And so we know just by the fact that God is a community, that God is in risky relationship even within God's self. Hmm. And then God chose to make a world that reflects that. And so God created our cosmos, our universe, our world as an interrelated system Mm. in which every single part and every single person depends on every other part and every other person. Mm. And so as a world, as people, as human beings, we reflect that very nature of God. But God chose to take a risk in creating the world mm. because God knew that anytime people or things are dependent on one another, we take the risk of being hurt. Oh. We take the risk of being harmed. We take the risk of hurting someone else. We take the risk of a decision that I make affecting some other part of this beautiful world in a way that isn't for its benefit. And so God created a world that reflects God's own, own being, own way of relating, but it meant taking the risk that all those parts of our world that are interrelated can affect one another Mm. and not only affect one another, but affect God. And so God took this risk in creating the world. And that's just the very beginning of the story. Mm. Well, this is, this is fascinating to me. How, How do you mean affect God? So let's think about it this way. I'm going to speak out of my experience as a woman, um, as a woman who has birthed a child. So I, as, as a woman who has birthed a child, I created space within my body for this baby. Mm. And this baby is something that's separate from me and yet somehow from me. Mm And I birthed this baby into reality, and she is her own person. Mm -hmm. 
And yet, because I birthed her from myself, that she is a reflection of myself, she's related to me, I never again will be the same because of her and what happens to her and the way she relates to me or what happens in her life affects me. Mm. It means that I am, I am changed because she exists. And if we think of God creating and birthing the world, that we believe that God is actually changed because of our existence, because of who we are, because we relate to God and not changed in a way that means that God is less godlike, but that God is even more like who God is because to be God is to be in relationship. Mm-hmm. And so God is actually more fully God's self because you exist on us, because I exist, because our world exists. And when we are hurt or when we hurt others, that God is affected like a parent who is invested in the well-being and the success and the flourishing of God's children. And so when, when some of God's children choose to make decisions that cause other of God's children to be harmed or to, to be forced to live in ways that aren't leading towards their flourishing, when we try to take power away from others, when we try to to live in a ways that hoard the, the world's resources, then God is affected. God is, is hurt. God is, is carrying the pain and the, the um, anger hmm. <laughs> of a parent who sees their child being harmed. Hmm. And so wow. I think we have to, we have to, to pay attention to ways that traditional um, stories about God that set God up as this unaffected in, you know, I, I, can, I can never rem- use the right words for this, immutable. but this immutable, mm-hmm. unaffected, separate being who, who is just stayed and, and unaffected by our world actually harms our ability to see who God is as, as witnessed by the story of scripture. Um, and so that's when it's great to bring in other voices and other kinds of theologians and other people who have different perspectives on God that will help us actually to see God through new eyes. And as we see God through new eyes, then we see ourselves through new eyes. Mm. We're going to take a quick break now to thank our sponsors and invite you to consider sponsoring Ing podcast. You can also play a big part in helping us spread the word about this podcast by giving our new Facebook page a like and sharing your favorite Ing podcast episodes with friends, encouraging them to subscribe and join this movement of leading, growing, and being as people of faith. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. In challenging times, how do we prepare for tomorrow? Invest in the path ahead with hope and sharing, love and caring, and with help from Everance. Many of us are taking it day by day, step by step. How can we make room for financial strategies and the Holy Spirit to help guide us for the longer term? Financial services for a purpose. Visit us today at everance.com. Well, I, you will probably get some interesting responses from <laughs> theologians because any suggestion that God uh, changes is going to is going to uh, raise some eyebrows. But when you said words like affected, I 
I certainly don't. My, I don't have a problem with that. Certainly, I think about there's something that uh, I, I think it was uh, it was Walter Brueggemann. I think in an Old Testament uh, text said something about God joining in solidarity and even being. Um, how did he put it? Uh, oh, he said Exodus was teaching us uh, a vulnerability of God that by God tr- mm-hmm. entrusting so much to human beings that there's this vulnerability and I can, I can get that, but I would find that there's some folks who might have a hard time with the notion of God changing and not like he's somehow uh, not sufficient without us. But Mm -hmm. if, if they took it that way, but it sounds like you're saying that, um, you know, once God created the world, things were not the same and can't be, could not be the same. Yeah. And could not be the Mm -hmm. same. And that actually means that God is more fully who God is because God is relationship. God is, is, is related to us. And, um, and I think we can see that most beautifully in the story of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So we have God who chooses to enter into the very world that God made. And God knows it's a vulnerable world. God knows that it's an interrelated world. God knows that by becoming human, that God is taking the risks of all of these things we've been talking about, the risks of rejection, the risks of harm, the risks of being mistreated, the risk of a violent death on the cross, the risk of building friendships with people. And God chooses to do it anyway. God chooses to be radically present to the vulnerability of what it means to be human. And I think it's beautiful to think about the fact that God doesn't become less God mm-hmm. by doing that. Right. We oftentimes are like, well, God set aside everything that it means to be God <laughs> in order to become human. Mm. But if we think of God as being so radically present to us, then in becoming human, God was actually showing what God was like to, to the, the nth degree. Mm. Indeed. That, that looking at Jesus actually shows us God's very nature. Mm what it means for God to be a risk taker. Well, that's certainly, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think there's a, a strong, a strong teaching in Philippians two. And in the beginning of Hebrews that we see what God is like when we see Jesus. And I mm-hmm. think that's certainly very consistent with, with Anabaptist thinking over the years. I think that's been a good contribution of Anabaptism to the broader discussions of Christology that we see in Jesus, what God is like. You you described well for me there in that last um, reflection how we see um, Jesus fully, or rather maybe we could say it that way, we see God more fully in Jesus and how Jesus uh, came into this world and, and was susceptible to the vulnerabilities and the vicissitudes and the trials of life here. I guess the question would be the other way around. Uh, does he become more God by having that experience? Mm-hmm. I love that, that concept of God being more God um, by that. I, I have to look up who it was that says it. There's a, a feminist theologian who talks about God saving the world through a radical human love, hmm. that God already had God's love, but God needed to experience human love in order to fully rescue humanity, uh, which I think is a really interesting idea to wow. chew on. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think we could talk about, yes, God being more God-like or coming more fully into God's self by choosing to do that. Hmm. 
Um, but I think it's also, and, and that's a fun word, like it's fun to think about, right, Dennis? Like it's just, let's chew on that as theologians. But for me, all of this, everything we're talking about, mm-hmm. it's not just, it's not just a mind game, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not just about trying to, um, to come up with some interesting theology. It's about the impact of the stories we tell about God on the way we live our lives. Mm. And so when we create a God who is far away and unchanging and, um, and very separate from who we are as human beings, then if we're believe that as scripture says, we are to be changed and transformed into the image of that God, then that's going to shape how we relate to people in mission. Because we, we see we have it already. Once we reach that point of mm. holiness, mm. then this is what we maintain. Yeah. And there's no, there's no messing with it. And people are allowed to come into that. But who we are remains fixed. Mm. But if we look at the story of Jesus and we look at how Jesus took risks, we looked at how, look at how Jesus was affected by relationships with other human beings. We look at how Jesus was changed by the people that he related to, then we see a different story of God and we say, yes, that's the God I want to be transformed into the image of. That's the God I want to be like. And it changes everything about how we can, we think about mission. Well, I, I, I want to talk more about mission, but I confess I'm going to have a hard time thinking about getting my head around God changing. But that's going to be, that'll, <laughs> that'll be for me to have to wrestle with right. for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what I do want to reflect upon is this notion that if if congregations in, that you've observed and, and experienced have been risk averse, what is the posture from a congregational standpoint? I think in some sense we you laid a framework of of connection and vulnerability, what, what might that look like in a very practical way, if you're following my question? Absolutely. I think a good place to start from your story, um, Dennis, is that you were, you had people saying to you, well, you're supposed to be the person mm-hmm. who's connecting. You're supposed to answer the door. You're, we hired you to do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I think the first place to start is to say, this is something we do as a community. Mm-hmm. This is not something for lone rangers. Right. This is not something for superheroes that we send out to the quote unquote mission field. This is not something that's supposed to happen far away. Mm-hmm. This is something for congregations to embrace nearby mm-hmm. in our neighborhoods, in the places where we live, the places where we work, where we play together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something we're supposed to do together as a community. And so I think creating a congregational culture where you understand mission to be something that you do together is really important. And part of that is creating a culture um, that where people are allowed to make mistakes, where people are allowed to experiment and try knowing that the congregation will be there for them um, when things don't go the way that they want. Um, It's creating a a place for people to feel safe, um, to be who they are, and to to acknowledge when they don't know the answers, and a place that that allows people to, to change and to say, you know what, I used to think that that this was 
true, or this is what we were supposed to be as a church. And I'm starting to realize that, that God has something else for us. Let's take some time and make some space, um, to allow that to unfold. Hmm. So I think that's a place to start is creating that kind of community mindset around mission. Hmm. Um, hmm. And then the another thing would be to understand the vulnerability of mission. Yeah. Um, and to realize that mission really is about relationships. And and programs can support relationships and can support mission, but God, Jesus didn't come to build programs. Amen. Jesus came to build relationships, and they were real relationships. They were, they were so deep that he went to people's houses and he allowed people to feed him dinner mm-hmm. and to take care of him. Yeah. He built friendships that were so deep that he cried when his friend Lazarus died, mm-hmm. and he mourned that. Um, they were relationships with people who were not necessarily the ones that everybody wanted to be around mm-hmm. when he went to the homes of tax collectors and prostitutes. And they were mutual relationships. They were not just Jesus doing things for others, but they were Jesus being willing to make himself vulnerable mm-hmm. to others. And so that's the nature of what we're called to in mission is to build relationships with the people around us in ways that could hurt, that could be hard, Hmm. that could cause us to question things, that could cause us to change, and hopefully will cause us to change, and believing that those changes actually, actually result in us looking more like Jesus than we did before. And that calls us into relationship with people who are very different from us, knowing that that is a reflection of, of God's dream Mm. for the world. Mm. Wow. Well, I, I can affirm so much there. I just, uh, having been a pastor for a lot of years, there's, there's often, and I think it's been conditioned by the way evangelicalism worked, you know, going back to the uh, camp meeting days and the sawdust trail and these kinds of things of, of having an expert up front, get a lot of people to come forward and pray a prayer. And so we thought, man, if I can't do that, then I can't really help to to be part of whatever mission looks like in my church. So we left it for experts. And if you didn't mm-hmm. have any experts in the church, then your church wasn't going to do any mission. And I put mission maybe in quotation marks because it looks different for people. Some of it is mm-hmm. just evangelism. For some people, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, a soup kitchen or something. Right. So I'm wondering how, um, you know, practically, how, how, how have you been practicing mission and maybe how do you continue to define that term or refine that term? Yeah. Yeah. Mission is one of those scary words, mm-hmm. right? Because people have different ideas of what it means. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen ways that mission has been used to harm. Whether it's been overseas, um, international mission um, that's partnered with colonialism, or people who've been just forced over and over again to pray the sinner's prayer. And uh, there's been a lot of harmful ways that the word mission has been used. Mm -hmm. But if we understand mission to mean the creation or recreation of a world that God dreamed about, (laughs) a world that God intended, um, from the beginning, it opens up whole new avenues for understanding mission. So if we believe that God created a world 
And God's dream for the world is for everyone and everything to live in union, in unity with God. And that everything God has been up to for thousands of years has been to draw all of human humanity back into community with God. Hmm. Wow. Then we can see all sorts of possibilities open up that God wants humanity to be in flourishing, loving relationships with one another and with God. And that's possible through Jesus. And we believe Jesus shows us what that looks like. Mm. We believe that Jesus, the life, the death, the resurrection, the very coming as a human being of Mm. Jesus Mm. makes it possible for humans to live in unity with one another and with God. And so for us, um, as we live here in Baltimore, it's manifested in a number of different ways. Um, It's meant building relationships with our neighbors here right on our block. Um, where we not only give to them, but we receive from them when they know we're having a tough week and they bring us a meal to help our family get through it. Um, when they help us to take whole, whole wheelbarrows full of bricks (laughs) from our car (laughs) to our back garden. Um, when we just sit on the deck and chat for hours Mm. as the sky gets dark, Mm -hmm. um, as we figure out how to be community during a time of COVID, when we can't go inside each other's houses, That's one way that we build flourishing, that we build a community as a reflection of God. Mm. Another way is as we relate to others in our day-to-day life to take times to to point out to them when we see God at work in their lives, Mm. when we see Jesus in them. One of the most powerful things I think we can say to someone else is, I see Jesus in you. Amen. And so to recognize the image of God in people and to help them to see it as well so that they realize they're made in God's image and God loves them. Yeah. So that's just something that happens day to day. And then then on a bigger scale, one of the things we're working on right now in our neighborhood is we've noticed that when there are times of conflict, uh, people's first thing is to call the police. Mm -hmm. So the neighbors having a loud party, call the police. There's fireworks going off all summer, call the police. Someone's not mowing their grass, you call the police. Um, And so we've been working with our neighborhood association to plan a training to teach us skills in conflict resolution, to teach us how to listen, Mm -hmm. how to talk, how to relate. And so we've had this... um, five-week class online that we're offering to our neighbors to learn how to listen well Mm. and to build relationships with our neighbors um, that will help so we don't always have to call the police. And and then the final thing that we're doing as a family is we've chosen to be uh, a foster family. Mm. We've had a young young girl in our home for almost two years. Mm. Um, And I think... As a foster, as a, uh, they call them resource parents now, but the, you know, we're used to calling them foster parents, right? Mm. What we've learned is that being foster parents is part of God's mission in the world Mm. Mm. because we are part of the healing of the children who live in our home. We are part of, of the community that's saying to them, you are loved. God loves you. Mm -hmm. You matter. Mm. 
We advocate for them. We, we carry the pain of, of building these close attached relationships and then saying goodbye yeah. because it's good for them to have those loving attached relationships. And so we carry that risk hmm. of, of loving someone so deeply and then having to say goodbye. Hmm. And this is part of what it means to be joining with God in God's mission to bring people into community and into relationship with God. And we have been changed. We are not the same people we were when we started fostering. Yeah, We have been changed and we have come to know God in deeper ways as we, we realize that God knows what it's like to lose a child, mm. Mm. that God knows what it's like to take the risk of loving loving people and losing them. And so God is, is with us in the risks that we're taking Mm. as foster parents. So those are just a few examples of what it looks like for us to live this out Hmm. in our neighborhood here in Baltimore. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. It, it, that's, that's beautiful. Actually. I, I am grateful for what you shared. There's so much about mission that um, you know, it's, it's a freighted term. I mean, it's got so many issues, it's so much of the us, them, and I hear you articulate a we that I find to be powerful. And I, I mean, I used to say, when, even, even as a pastor, when new members would come into the church, I'd say something like, we're, we, we've just changed. We're different now because these folks are here. And, and for some people I could see they bristled a little bit and, uh, and I would find that for some people, it was it, the, the sense was we're we're static, like you were saying earlier, and somebody just came in, so they have to be absorbed into us, sort of in a in a uh, Star Trek Borg like the way you have to have to you know be um, you know taken over in some sense. But 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 what you're talking about is a transformation, really, that happens in, through relationship, and I think more more churches do well to see that happen. But uh, so as I continue on with this pragmatic thought, I really thank you about what you're saying with your family. Does, does this have any practical implications for like sizes of congregations? Like, like, Mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've seen in the eighties, like the big mega stuff, right. And that was, everybody wanted that. If we could just get everybody in the doors, that was like the thing. And now I'm seeing a lot of folks, uh, (laughs) You're resisting that, and I feel like that's a good thing <laughs> that they're resisting. But, but are there any practical implications for like the size of congregations? Yeah, I, I <laughs> that's a great question. I think in some ways that's self-answering um, because the bigger the congregation, the harder it is to build that kind of community. Unless you're a huge congregation that can break into smaller like subgroups within the congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to be harder. The bigger your church is, it's going to be harder to live like this. Hmm. Whereas when you're in a smaller community, um, it just lends itself more to building the kinds of relationships within the church to create a safe space out of which people can take risks in mission Hmm. and love it. Um, As well as have space for new people to come in and not just be absorbed like a raindrop in the ocean. Right. Right. 
and, and to actually be changed and transformed. So I would agree with you. I think it has huge implications for that. And it doesn't mean that large churches can't do this, right. but it means they're going to have to be more intentional right. about how they shape themselves. Yeah, I hear that. Raindrop in the ocean, that was way better than my Borg illustration because <laughs> there's no more Trekkies out there anywhere. <laughs> but that was great. That was great. I appreciate that. You know, you, you, you touched on this a little earlier about when we were talking theology, but, but you mentioned it just in passing, but I wanted to come back to it. You mentioned um, womenist and liberation theology as kind of flavoring your approaches. Are, are, can you elaborate on that a little bit or some, mm-hmm. some things that you've uh, taken from those streams of thought? Absolutely. Yeah. One of the conclusions that I've come to in the research that I've done is we can't expect to be changed by continuing to listen to the same voices. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happens is, is we think we're asking new questions. Um, but really it's just, we're not, we're, we think we're asking new questions and coming to, to different answers. <laughs> um, but really, it's just it's recycling the same thing over and over again with maybe a tweak here or there. Yeah. And so we're not actually changing. And so if we want to change, if we want to say that what we've been doing for the past however long isn't working for us, then we need to invite new voices to speak into our reality. And so for me, as I've done my research, that's meant looking for voices within my tradition who haven't necessarily been in the center of theological conversations. But then also saying, we can't just stay within our tradition. We need to to look for perspectives from outside of our tradition who can actually correct Hmm. our tradition. And that's part of what it means to be open to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit is to allow others to speak into what has been a pretty insular community mm. who thinks we're right and everybody else is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, that's meant looking at the, vo- the work and the voices um, of liberation theologians, of womanist and feminist and Asian feminist and so many so many beautiful theologians mm. who are out there and ask how how do their perspectives correct some things from my own tradition that have gotten off course yeah yeah and so it's the same thing we we're talking about earlier where we're saying how can they speak into who we are that actually makes us more of who we are mm-hmm. that makes us more deeply who we are that makes us a better reflection of who we want to be yeah and so I, in conversations with feminist and womanist, um, Asian feminist, disability theologians, um, they've offered some insights into this reality of vulnerability or this sense of um, what, it, what does it mean to be oneself? Yes. I love this person. One of the um, conversations among feminist theologians and ethicists is, is there such a thing as self-sacrifice? Hmm. Because if you choose to sacrifice, you're not actually losing who you are, but you're becoming more of who you are Hmm. in that sacrifice. You're not losing yourself. Hmm. And so to think about that, what does it mean for us to make choices that from the outside people would say, oh, that's so self-sacrificing, but from the inside feel like we're becoming even more who we are by choosing to risk that relationship or risk that 
choice. Um, and that's been transforming for me and how I think about taking risks and how I think about what Jesus did. Wow. Um, yeah. and then the whole, I, the Latina evangelicas, um, mm-hmm which are evangelical Latina feminist theologians. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk a lot about the community of God or the creation of space for everyone mm. and, and how eternity is where God is <laughs> and where God is makes space for everyone to come in. And so that's, that's um, really shaped my perspectives of what does it look like for God's dream to come true? What does it look like for God's mission to be fulfilled? Well, it's when we've made space for everyone to be welcomed into the community of God. Um, and that's, I think, what's so beautiful about that, because for many decades, many feminist theologians would have would have said there's no space for mission in the church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mission is colonial. Mission is a power grab. Mission is controlling. But if we actually look at the theology of many of these feminist, womanist, Asian feminist, liberation theologians, what they're describing of God's dream for the world is mission. Hmm. And if we can include some of those ways of of seeing God and seeing Hmm. um, God's dream for the world into our understandings of mission, then we can actually um, allow those voices to speak into how we talk about mission and how we live it out, which I think is such a rich gift to the church. Yeah, that's, that's really great and very helpful. I'm, I'm involved in some spaces where the word mission comes up. In fact, there's a discipline that um, my friend, our friend, well, you know him too, Michael Gorman, Dr. Michael Gorman, New Testament mm-hmm. scholar, uh, has worked a lot in an area called missional hermeneutics, how we see the move of God in the scriptures and how we are called to join in that. Um, and there are some folks who bristle at that because as soon as we hear the word mission, we can't help but to think of colonialism. And for those who understand the pain, uh, it's not a term that, that they're ready to embrace. Mission isn't, but the way you've just described things, I think is helpful because we're seeing, we're seeing a full, a fuller picture, a picture more like God, so let me let me let me just ask this. I'm I'm curious if you could sum up and you've touched on it already, but if you could sum up like what what's the result of the risk, right? If you're taking a risk, what's the reward? Like what's the payoff? You know, what's interesting about that question, Dennis, mm-hmm. is I think it depends on what your motivations mm-hmm. are. If your motivation for mission is to grow the church or for your traditional church not to die, um, for you, then the payoff for living this the way that I'm describing would be, you know, more people come into your church and yeah, 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 you survive. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. But for me, it's not about that. For me, when I talk about taking risks of love in mission, It's one, because I want to be like Jesus and, and that's who Jesus is and that's what Jesus did. And so if by living that way, I become more like Jesus and I deepen my relationship with Jesus, then that's a reward in and of itself. Um, but on the other hand, it's not just about me, but it's about others. And as I grow to love my neighbors 
as as I build relationships with them, my love for them gets even deeper. Mm. It's it's the cycle thing, right? You get closer and you love more. And as you love more, you get closer. And then as you get closer, <laughs> you love more. And and you and and for me it's about offering them or walking alongside them as they experience the love of God for them as they experience what it means to be invited into God's community, mm-hmm. as they experience what it means to realize they're made in the image of God and they have something to offer the world, mm-hmm. to see them flourishing, to see them free of the, uh, free of, of whether it's systemic structures or, mm-hmm. or, uh, or personal sins, whatever it ha- has been, that's been holding them back to see them experiencing the flourishing of God. Um, when we see people, we love mm-hmm. growing and, and coming to know God deeply and flourishing as the humans that beings that God created them to be, that's beautiful. Mm. Like that's, that's so fulfilling. Um, and so I don't know if that's a payoff, (laughs) (laughs) but being part of God's dream for the world, I think is, is worth it to me. It's worth the risk of, of loving so deeply. Mm, Amen. Well, I I think of that as a payoff. I mean, I, I, the word that had come to my mind was flourishing, you know, that there's a sense Mm -hmm. of human flourishing. And to me, that would be, um, the, uh, the reward for the risk, you know, um, I, I do feel like, um, sometimes churches think merely in the, uh, in terms of commodities, like, can we get more people Mm -hmm. and more money? Um, and we're talking, you're talking something deeper, certainly much more, um, much deeper than those things. So I really appreciate that. Thank you for, uh, walking us through what you've been thinking about, working on, and living in your life these years. That's been really refreshing. I'm grateful for that. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything you want to share with us about anything you've been working on or any notions about about your book or something that might be some irons on the fire that you're that you're working on? <laughs> oh, my goodness. There's always many, many irons in the fire. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, one of the things I'm doing as part of my role with, with Mosaic Conference right now is helping to build our Mosaic Institute, which is uh, part of our conference structure to help um, provide classes and equipping um, and spaces for people to learn how to um, go deeper into scripture, how to live out some of these missional commitments. Um, so that's one of the things that's that's going on right now. I, I always have... Uh, lots of ideas of what the next book is going to be, but we'll see if that ends up happening. Um, awesome. But then also, I, I think it's really important when you ask a question like that, it's, it's easy for people to feel like, okay, I have to have some big, you know, I have a book going on or some research paper, or, um, something major that I'm working on. But some of the irons I have in the fire right now are, are parenting. Hmm. are loving my kids, are being a foster parent and advocating to try and fix a broken foster care system, Um, being present to my neighbors um, and supporting uh, the leadership of our neighborhood association and living my life in a way that I believe um, 
is is in line with God's dream for me and and for my neighborhood. And so I want to honor that reality as well, that sometimes the projects that we're working on aren't fancy or glittery (laughs) or attention catching, but they are they are living in ways that are helping God's dream come true on earth as it is in heaven. Mm, wow. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Reverend Dr. Emily Ralph Servant. I really have enjoyed this conversation with you. I've learned, I've been, uh, I have some of my own thoughts uh, affirmed and I've been challenged as well. So I, I'm grateful for all of that. So God bless you. And, uh, and I look forward to our paths crossing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dennis. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who continue to support Ing Podcast. We'd like to thank Everence, a faith-based financial services organization, for their ongoing support of Ing Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Do you have a topic or someone you think should be interviewed on Ing Podcast? Let us know by emailing theing at menomedia.org. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menno Media. Today's show was produced by me, Ben Weidman. Ing Podcast is a production of Menno Media, a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.